Okay, grab a Bible and turn to Isaiah chapter 11, please. If you're using a blue Bible from the center of your table, it's page 640. Isaiah chapter 11. We will cover verses 1 through 10 today. Isaiah 11, 1 through 10, page 640. Next week, we will be in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Next week will be Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. So it may seem funny if we're going back, but you will, uh, I'll speak to that a little bit next week. The book of Isaiah is not chronological like the book of Acts is. It's arranged uh, di- very differently. So Isaiah, it's a, one of the longest books of the Bible. And it's named after one of my favorite people. I mean, wait, my favorite, one of my favorite people is named after it. Or Isaiah the prophet, actually. Isaiah the prophet lived 700 to 750 years before Jesus was born. And if you are familiar with that part of the Old Testament where the northern kingdom is conquered by the Assyrian nation and taken into exile and slavery, if you're familiar with that, Isaiah was alive when that happened. And he actually had quite a bit to say before that happened. But Isaiah was a prophet, and that meant that God gave him a very special role in the world. God would give Isaiah God's words, and God would speak these words, his messages, through Isaiah. And many of those messages were messages of warning. Some were messages of coming judgment. Some were also messages of great and incredible hope. During these next four weeks, we're going to look at four different passages all throughout the book of Isaiah about a coming king, about a coming hope about good things that are to take place. And I want you to recall, as we read these passages, as you discuss these passages, as you hear me preach these passages, as you think through this part of the Bible over these next four weeks, I want you to think about how Jesus came. He's come once before, but he's going to come a second time. But for Isaiah and the people who heard him when he was alive, he had not come yet at all. And so Christ has come, but he's not here yet, right? Christ has come, but he will come again. And so as we read this, I want you to keep in mind that when they were first hearing it, it was all future. But for us, some of what we've read was fulfilled in Jesus' first coming, and some will be fulfilled in the second coming. Now, I want to tell you this. We're not going to try to hash out specifics and get super-duper detailed on this stuff about when 
everything's going to happen. I'm not going to try to construct some big grand timeline. My goal in these four weeks is to cause you to anticipate and to look forward to the hope that is before us. I want us to be eagerly looking forward to the return of Christ. I want us to understand what He's already done. And I want us to understand what He is going to do. And how that should affect how we live our lives. And what we love. And what we long for. And as we do this, you're going to see that Jesus Christ is the most amazing, beautiful, incredible, perfect person that's ever lived. Y'all, there's nobody like Jesus. There's nobody like Jesus. And we're going to see that hundreds of years before Jesus came, Isaiah was talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. So, with all that being said, let's dive into verse 1. Through 10 of Isaiah chapter 11. Follow along with me as I read, please. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord As the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Keep in mind as you read this passage to yourself that these things are in the future. Keep in mind there's a lot of symbolic language. Ask yourself, What do you think this means? Ask yourself, how do I obey what the scripture teaches in this passage? Ask yourself, where is it that you see the gospel in this passage? Please take a few minutes.
read the passage to yourself as much as you can, and we'll start our discussion in just a bit. All right. Unique passage, a lot of symbolism, a lot of imagery. If we don't get our heads wrapped around verse 1, nothing there is going to make sense in the remaining verses. Verse 1 is heavily, heavily symbolic. And it's symbolic dealing with the nature of a plant, and specifically a tree. How is it that trees grow? What are the parts of a tree? How does a tree reproduce? Verse 1 says that there is a time coming in the future when a shoot will shoot up from a stump. And the stump's name is Jesse. So we got to know who Jesse is. And the shoot is going to turn into a, a trunk. And it's going to have branches. And there will be fruit on the branches. And don't you know that it is fruit that holds the seed? And that's how things reproduce. So verse 1, there will come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Who's Jesse? Jesse is the father of King David. King David lived about 200 years before Isaiah said this. And so we've got King David, we've got his father Jesse, and then David had Solomon, and then Solomon had a whole bunch of kids. He had more kids than I do. And kid after kid after kid, many of them became kings of Israel. But there's going to come a day where David's family line, where Jesse's family line, isn't doing that great. Just like you may chop down a tree and there's a stump left in the ground. You know, that tree's not quite as great and as majestic or as beautiful as aw- or awesome or as strong or as just present and visible and noticeable as it used to be, right? Isaiah is saying that Jesse's family, David's family, it's going to be a day when they're like a stump. But y'all, the tree's not dead. Jesse's family, David's family, and the promises made about their family are yet to be fulfilled. And a day will come when you're going to notice a tiny little bit of green growth on that stump. And it's going to grow into the trunk of an incredible, beautiful, strong, powerful, noticeable tree. And from this tree, from the stump of Jesse, from this little shoot, there will be branches. And you all, those branches will bear fruit. So, this is not a literal tree. But this is symbolic. Jesus Christ is that shoot that comes up from the stump of Jesse. Jesse and David were a... A, a, an ancestor of Jesus. Jesus was a physical blood descendant of King David and Jesse. But this imagery is important. 
Many places in the Bible, we see God promising judgment on evil nations. And it says He's going to take an axe to them. And He's going to chop them down. We see nations, we see groups of people, we see families often referred to as trees in the Bible. Uh, If you look at chapter 10, verses 33 and 34, the two verses before verse 1, it speaks of God bringing judgment to Assyria. And Assyria was the most powerful nation in the world at this time. And they were an incredibly wicked nation. And chapter 10, verse 33 says, Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. You know that song, Deck the Halls with Boughs of Holly, that we like to sing this time of year? What is a bough? It has to do with a branch. And really, specifically, a large or strong branch. But he's going to lop those down with terrifying power. He says the great in height will be hewn down. And the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe. And Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. I've cut down small trees. I've never cut down a large tree. But I remember as a kid watching my dad cut down big trees. He'd get a rope that was longer than the tree was tall. He'd climb that tree. He'd tie that rope up there. He'd hook it to the bumper of his truck. Mama would be in the truck. He'd be on the chainsaw. And Mama knew what to do when when Dad yelled and backed away from the tree. Because me and my brother were far, far away. Y'all, there's nothing simple about cutting down a strong and powerful tree. But I tell you what, in God's judgment, He cuts down the strongest of nations as He pleases. He cuts it down as He pleases. So think about this little shoot. Okay? There was a time when the family of Jesse, family of David, wasn't doing good. It looked like a stump. But there was new life coming in. It takes a long time, doesn't it? For a tiny little plant to grow up and bear fruit, doesn't it? Jennifer and I would like an orchard on our land. We've done a little bit of study and looking into it. And we'd like to get on top of it soon because we know it's not like your summer garden vegetables. You're not going to plant a seed and get a harvest 15 weeks later. You're going to plant a seed if you get a, or you're going to plant a sapling And if you get a harvest in five to ten years, then you're doing really, really good. And that type of slow growth is how we often see fruit of this nature in the Bible. But it will take generations for this sapling to come up and for this fruit to grow. You all, verse 1, this shoot... It's about a king. We see in verse 2 that it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon him. This shoot is a person. And this shoot is none other than Jesus Christ. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, the prophet Nathan speaks to King David. 900 to 1,000 years before Jesus comes. And Nathan says to David, When your days are fulfilled, when you lie down with your fathers... I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. 
He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And about a thousand years later, that happened. Jesus Christ, the descendant of David, would come and establish his kingdom. So let's learn more about this king. Look at verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. In Luke chapter 4, shortly after Jesus was baptized, he was in a synagogue. It was a Jewish gathering for worship, similar to what we do here. And someone gave him a scroll from the prophet Isaiah. And he opened it up and he read from Isaiah chapter 61. And he read this. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he went on to read a few other things. But then he said, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. You all, people didn't claim that for themselves. The spirit of God, he lives in God's people today. In the Old Testament... The Spirit of the Lord would occasionally come upon different people. But it would often be a temporary situation where they had God's power in a special or unique way. But that power of God, that presence of God would come and go. We see prophets and priests and kings in the Old Testament walk in the Spirit of God so that they could fulfill their role. But here Jesus claims the Spirit for himself. That was very, very significant. So what type of Spirit is this? It is a Spirit of wisdom. King Jesus has wisdom like no one else does. His wisdom is infinite and eternal, and he rules and reigns over his kingdom in perfect wisdom. The second thing that it says about the Spirit is it is a Spirit of understanding. Y'all, my kids have said stuff to me that I don't, today, that I don't understand. Okay. Didn't we just have a Bible conversation? And weren't there things said in that conversation that you didn't understand? Jesus has perfect understanding in all things. This spirit that was upon Jesus, or I'm going to speak like they would have spoken in Isaiah's day, the spirit that would be upon this Messiah was the spirit of counsel and might. He was a perfect guide. He knew what needed to be done. And he could teach people how it is that they were to live their lives. He could teach people truth For he was the truth, and the Spirit abided upon him. The Spirit was a Spirit of might. You all, Jesus came, he lived, he died, he rose again, he ascended to the Father as the Almighty God. Even though Jesus submitted to the will of his enemies and was executed as a criminal, even though he laid down his life freely, even in that, he was the Almighty. His death was not a sign of weakness. His death was a sign of all these perfect things. His wisdom, his understanding, his counsel, and his might. Verse 2 goes on to say, 
That this spirit is the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And then verse 3 goes on to say quickly, His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Are you afraid of God? You should be. You should be. Now, if you belong to Jesus, if you're saved, if he's wiped away your sin, you should have confidence to go to him and get mercy and grace in your time of need, as the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews 4. Okay? If you are a Christian, you always have access to God. And you should always be know that your Heavenly Father is there to receive you and welcome you. But this fear of God... It is a little bit different from that. Do you think that you can just flippantly use the Lord's name in vain? Do you think, do you treat his name like you do the name of someone that you hate or despise? Or is his name precious to you? Are you concerned about upsetting him? Does it upset you when you disobey his commands? Or do you just do whatever the heck you want to do whenever you want to do it, however you want to do it? And you refuse to live under his authority. This shoot, this tree that would branch out and bear fruit and come to us in the Virgin Mary, and live and walk in this earth just as we have. You all, he feared God. He feared God so much that he obeyed God in every single way. And it was his delight. You all, it was his desire. It was something that he looked forward to. See, for Jesus, the law of God was the final word in everything. He took it all seriously and he obeyed it perfectly. And anything that God, his father, wanted, he joyfully went forward and did it. It doesn't mean it was always easy. doesn't mean he always wanted to do it. But he obeyed perfectly in every way. You all, his delight was in the fear of the Lord. If the spirit of God is in you, then you will do the same. It will be your joy and your delight to fear God and to obey him. But verse 2 tells us about God's spirit being upon this king that would come. You all, it is the spirit that creates the type of ruler that we read about in verses 3, 4, and 5. You all read about this perfect judge, righteous in every way. He kills the bad guys. He looks out for those who can't look for themselves. That's what the Spirit of God does. Creates people like that. People who are just. People who care and look out for others. But in this passage, we see that the Spirit of God is upon the King. And because of that, He is the perfect King. So the Spirit creates the type of ruler that we see in verses 3, 4, and 5. And the Spirit of God creates the type of world that we read about in verses 6, 7, 8, and 9. 
Did y'all like the kids playing with snakes and not getting hurt? Did, did y'all like um, the wolf and the lamb together? Did y'all like these animals of prey no longer attacking those that were weak, that could not defend themselves? You all, because the Spirit of God is on Jesus, He currently is in the process of creating that type of world. So, the Spirit is on Him, and He bears fruit. And He bears fruit because He delights in the fear of God. Let's look at verses 3, 4, and 5 more closely. We know this shoot from the stump of Jesse. He is a king. And you all, he's a judge. Does he judge by what he sees or does he judge by what's really happening? He judges by what he sees, doesn't he? Does he decide disputes by what he hear, by what, because of what someone tells him? We got a lot of kids in this room. I think just about all, yeah, I think all of you got siblings, right? You ever been in a spat with your mom and dad? And you tell mom and dad your side, and your brother or sister tells them their side, and then your dad, your mom, tries to make the best decision based on what they've seen and heard, right? Sometimes mom and dads don't get it right, okay? A lot of times they do, I think. Sometimes they don't. Y'all, mom and dads don't see it all. But this king who rules and reigns from heaven, who will return, he sees it all. He sees everything. We don't hide anything from him. You can try, kids, y'all can try to hide stuff from your parents. You can't hide things from God. Adults, you can't hide things from God either. Amen? He knows the deepest, darkest parts of everyone in this world. And how will he judge? He will judge not just by what he can see in front of him like we see in front of us, but he judges out of the depths of his knowledge and he knows it all. There is no end to his knowledge. There are no limits to his knowledge. He always gets it right. In verse 4, he says he judges the poor with righteousness. And he decides with equity or fairness for the meek of the earth. If you go back and read the first part of chapter 10, you see a lot of rich, powerful people oppressing the poor. How many of y'all know that poor people have a harder time fighting for themselves? They don't have money to get a lawyer. They don't have money to go out and get a weapon to protect themselves. They might not be very educated in some cases, many cases. So they don't necessarily know how to stand up and, 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 and fight when someone who's more powerful with more resources fighting against them. So we live in a world today where poor people are exploited. Just look up the modern day sex slavery trade. It's a despicable, awful, and nasty thing. But there will come a day when this judge rescues them from the hand of their oppressors. And we see that now today, here and there. God will come and He'll make a really bad, evil, wrong thing right. 
But he's not making it all right right now. But you all, there is coming a day when this God, when this king, when this judge, when this shoot from the stump of Jesse, this son of David is going to break in to our world in a grander way than we've ever seen. And he's going to make every wrong thing right. And it is going to be beautiful and marvelous. The second half of verse 4, we see he's going to strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with his, the breath of his lips, he will kill the wicked. Y'all, I'm glad that Jesus kills people. Y'all, Jesus is love, ain't he? He loves me, he loves you, right? But I want to just go ahead and say it. Jesus kills his enemies. That's what he does. I believe that today, in this age that we're in, he arranges for his enemies to be taken out. I believe that he brings judgment in this earth now, but it's not judgment in its fullness. But there will be a day when Jesus returns, his enemies are going to see him, and he's going to kill all of his enemies. And it it says that it's going to happen with the rod of his mouth. I believe rod is very symbolic. I mean, you know what a rod is. You know what parental authorities do with a rod. It's symbolic for discipline and judgment. And it says, with the breath of his lips, I believe this is a reference to his word. With his powerful word, he is going to kill the wicked. You all, Jesus came to save the first time. When he comes back again, he's coming to kill his enemies. But he's not just going to all of a sudden jump into a blind rage and uncontrolled anger and just kill the guy in the room with him. Jesus will be just and right. He is the perfect judge. He is the perfect jury. He is the perfect courtroom in every way. And his enemies who have despised Him and who have rejected Him, who have disobeyed His word, His command, and His law. Jesus, there will be a day when Jesus has no more patience and He is going to kill them. And it will be death and eternal destruction that lasts forever and ever. So, Jesus is a perfect ruler and a perfect judge. We've all lived with bad authorities in this life, haven't we? We've all had imperfect parents. We've all had bosses that didn't treat us right. We've seen politicians who've done all kinds of wrong things. Let me tell you, Jesus' authority is perfect in every way. And when he brings judgment on, the guilty will truly be punished for what they've done. And those who are innocent, the children of God who've had their sins wiped away, We will be set free from all the evil in this world that we have to live with all around us at this time. He will destroy evil. So, the Spirit of God makes this perfect ruler. The Spirit of God makes this perfect judge. But in verse 6, we see this perfect world. We see this perfect world. You all, this is the world that the king makes. The true king. This is the world that 
Jesus is currently making. I believe everything in verses 6 through 9, I believe that in some sense we can see Jesus doing this today. It very much sounds like the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? It's a place of peace. It's a place of no death. It's a place of no hostility. If you belong to Christ, I want you to know that your Savior is making this world right now before our very eyes. But there will be a day that is yet to come when this will be the world that we live in. With none of the pain, none of the darkness, none of the sickness, none of the evil, none of the wickedness, none of the oppression. All of that will be gone. So we're not fully there yet. That's where we're headed. I read verses 6 through 9. It sounds like the Garden of Eden. There's a couple places in the Bible where it talks about the restoration of all things. And some of the best theologians I know, that they, they say that the best way to talk about the end, the best way to summarize all the different stuff that takes place at the end, is the restoration of all things. You all, Jesus Christ came, and the Bible says that if anyone is in Christ, the new has come. The old has passed, and the new has come. See, God is already restoring people, isn't He? Hasn't he done a partial restoration of you by taking your sin away and dwelling and abiding in you and making you different than you were? But that's only a part of the good work that God is in the business of doing, that God is currently doing. We see in verses 6 through 9, we see peace. I believe that all of this, while there's certainly is likely a literal fulfillment of these things. I don't deny that at all. I mean, I have every reason to think that we're going to have these animals in the new heavens and new earth. I have every reason to think that there's going to be no more attacking and no more death and no more predators in the new heavens and new earth. But I I see this, in addition to that literal fulfillment, I see it as pointing to the peace that Jesus gives. The peace that He's creating. The peace that He's establishing here and now. You all, this peace is already present. It's not fully present, but it's already present. Romans 14, 17. Paul writes, The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. You all, the peace of God is here and now. The king came. He set up his kingdom. His kingdom is not fully present, but it is present. It's already here. And in this kingdom, there is peace in the Holy Spirit. The spirit of the Lord that would be upon this shoot from the stump of Jesse, that spirit that was upon Jesus that descended on him like a dove when he was baptized, That peace, that spirit is in us. And because his spirit is in us, because the king lives in us, the kingdom is present wherever we are. And we have peace and we bring peace 
because of his spirit in us. You all, not, not only is the kingdom of God um, a, a matter of bringing peace to this world, but you all, we have peace with God. If you belong to Christ, if he's wiped away your sin, then God is not angry with you anymore. Everything you've ever done that has upset you, you know how sometimes there's things in your past you're just sitting here thinking about it, you're like, man, I can't believe I did that. And some of us, sometimes we, we don't even feel like we can go to God because we are just so upset with ourselves and we're just sure that He has to feel the same way that we do. I want you to know that if you belong to Christ, if you're saved, that He doesn't hold those things against you and you now have peace with God. You may have a hard time having peace with yourself. You may think there's no way that God could ever do anything for you again because of what you did. But I tell you, you can have peace with God. In Romans 5.1, Paul writes, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, when He came the first time, He came to bring peace. In Galatians 5.22, it says the fruit of the Spirit is peace. Do you know God? Does His Spirit rest on you? Then there should be peace in your life. You all, in Ephesians chapter 2, we see another way in which peace came to the world the first time that Jesus came. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. uh, Paul is talking to Gentiles. He says, There was a day when you were separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were not a part of the people of God, Paul says. You were strangers to the covenant of promise. You had no hope and you were without God. But now, in Christ Jesus, the Gentiles who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For Jesus Christ himself is our peace. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, we learn more about why God is no longer angry with us. We learn more about how God took away our sin so that we could have peace with Him. In Colossians 2, 13, Paul says, You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses. Y'all know what it's like to have someone mad at you, don't you? You know what? God has given you new life if you're a Christian. God has forgiven all the horrible things you've done if you're a Christian. And he did this by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with our legal demands. Y'all, I'm a money, I owe money on my house. You know, a lot of you probably have some form of debt. And that is very much where we are before Christ comes into our life. Now imagine all of that debt being gone. Imagine the peace 
that that brings because you are no longer obligated to something or someone else. Jesus canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Paul says he set it aside, nailing it to the cross. You all, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You know who those rulers and authorities are? Those are demonic entities. The demons of hell that are opposed to fighting God in every way. Jesus took their gun away, y'all. He disarmed them. Everything that they used to have to attack people with, they don't have it anymore. Because Jesus has brought peace to our world. And when Jesus conquers his enemies, his enemies always need to be conquered, first off. He always gets it right. He never goes after someone who who does what is right. He always knows who the bad guys are. But he went and he conquered these enemies. And when those enemies are conquered, now there is peace. So this is a present peace that is being described. But the fullness of it is not yet to be seen. In Psalm 110 verse 1, the psalmist says that Jesus is going to make his enemies a footstool. Most of us have stools in our house. You put your feet on top of them, right? Like, what a horrible thing to be, right? The Bible says that there will be a day that will come when Jesus would put all his enemies under his feet. That verse, Psalm 110, verse 1, is quoted more in the New Testament than any other Old Testament verse. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about this conquering. In 1 Corinthians 15, 24, Paul writes, Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom, Jesus delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. You all, death. Uh, is not peace, right? Let me ask you in verses 6 through 9, did you see anything in there about death? The predators weren't being predators, were they? Verses 6 through 9 is pointing us to a world where death is a thing of the past. How many of y'all looking forward to that? I, I, I'm... I'm just going to cry a minute here, but Thursday night, you know, we lost my uncle five weeks ago. He was 62 years old. We went to his house Thursday night for Thanksgiving dinner. It was hard. It was, in some senses, it was wonderful because we were all kind of in that same place. But, oh my gosh, I look forward to the day when I don't have to know that all these people in my life are going to die one day. I am so eager for this world where death has been defeated. Y'all, we have a lot to look forward to, don't we? Jesus has done so much for us in the past. 
And in some ways, I kind of feel like he's just getting started, y'all. 1 Corinthians 15 goes on to say this. Death is swallowed up in victory. Death is swallowed up in victory. God just swallows it up. It's gone. He overcomes it. He conquers it. And it's gone. Paul continues to write, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You all, verses 6 through 9 is all about the peace that God has brought to our world today and the peace that he is still planning to establish in the future. And you all, this is a certainty. We can count on God doing everything in this prophecy. He's going to fulfill it perfectly. Let's wrap up by looking at 9 and 10. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Yeah, I can almost think about this in a selfish and flippant way. I'm just like, you know, those days where my kids aren't hurting each other and nobody breaks anything, you know, those are, those are better days, aren't they? You know, I, I look forward to those days. And when I think, like, how nice those days are, you know, um, and we have a lot of those days. You know, it's not craziness all the time by any means at all. But we do have days where people get hurt. We do have days where things are broken. But But when I think about a world where no one's getting hurt, where no kid or poor person is being dragged off into the sex trade, where no man is telling his girlfriend to go abort your baby, where no rich or powerful person is trying to brainwash an entire group of people with lies and injustice, when no more hurricanes wipe out entire cities, when there's no more destruction, when there's no more pain or heartache from a spouse that was unfaithful or from a friend who betrays or from a dictator who launches an invasion on innocent people. When the kingdom of God is fully consummated There will be no hurt. There will be no pain. There will be no destruction in all of God's holy mountain. And I'm going to go on to say in all of the earth. Verse 9 goes on to show us that this is global in nature. Everywhere throughout God's creation will know the glory of God and his honor. The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Is not the sea on every side of this planet? The word of the Lord, the knowledge of the Lord, the peace, the presence, the rule and the reign of God on this earth will be full and complete and perfect in every way. 
All of God's creation will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. You all, we have the knowledge of God, and hasn't that made things wonderful for us? Can you imagine that being the case with all 8 billion people on the planet? Could you imagine a world like this? We must look forward to the advent or the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, in verse 10, we see more fruit that comes forth from this shoot from the stump of Jesse. Verse 10, in that day, the root of Jesse. I love it. Jesus is not only the shoot that grows up from the stump, but he's also the roots of that stump. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious, you all. People from every tongue, tribe, and nation will worship this king. Y'all, I don't think there's a single king on earth where everyone in his country loves him and follows him, right? There is not a single ruler. I mean, our nation is more divided than it's ever been. Isn't that right? I don't think there's a single nation where everyone loves their ruler. But yet this ruler, this king who has come, who will come again, all nations will come to him. What an incredible king. What an incredible ruler. Let's pray.